1: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Amy Wesselman, David Autry. It's uh, January 16th, 2018. We're at Westry Winery in McMinnville. And we'll start you guys off with a nice, easy question, which is why wine? Mm, why wine? Well, we both had degrees
2: in philosophy, and we're planning- Had, Well, we still have them. Uh, we were planning to, I was planning to go to graduate school, and get my PhD in philosophy. Um, Don't hit the mic. <laughs> and David was planning to go to law school. Uh, no I applied to graduate schools as also. well that's true I was accepted in two PhD programs and then David Lett, I'm sorry David Adelsheim found us jobs in Burgundy working harvest in 1991 and so it was like I'd taken my GREs but it was like Burgundy grad school Burgundy grad school I obviously Burgundy got one so uh, I had written my thesis on Aristotelian ethics and part of my take-home message from that was that leading a balanced life was leading an ethical life. Um, And what I learned in Burgundy, because there's so much emphasis in working in the vineyard there, is that there's this amazing balance in wine growing, grape growing and winemaking, between working outside and working inside, working with people, working in a solitary fashion, working with science, working with your social skills, um, working long days, short days, physical days, sedentary days, it, it just seemed like a very balanced life. And we'd been living next to John Paul from Cameron Winery while we were in school, actually, and that's how we kind of got our foot in the door learning how to you know, be seller rats, essentially. And we thought, well, you know, we, we know of a lot of people who have put a lot of money into wineries and then they've lost it. <laughs> so why don't we start with no money <laughs> and see where we can go from there? So our first vintage uh, was in 1993. We made about 400 cases of wine, just a little bit of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And we have slowly grown up from there. What
0: I think she's, she's uh, missing, though. Only politely so, uh, was I graduated two years earlier than she did, and uh, we were living together, so I was waiting for her to, to finish up. And with the help of, of John Paul, was was starting to, to work in the industry. Um, my first vintage was in 1989 with uh, Carol Adams at Adams Winery, and uh, I had gotten the, that job because. Uh, Carol had broken her wrist two weeks before harvest and was at a tasting. And at that time in the industry, there were only about uh, 72 wineries in Oregon and in Northern Lyman Valley, there was only about um, 35, maybe 38. And you still went to a tasting and everybody was there. And so Carol was at the pouring next to John and Carol had her uh, hand in her wrist, or, sorry, wrist in, in a cast and she was like, what am I going to do?" And John was like, you know, I think I have a person for you. And <laughs> ten days later, I was uh, scrubbing tanks and starting my first har- uh, harvest and got the bug. And so I worked the next, I started uh, pruning at that point in time. and, and um, January of 1990 worked uh, on and off in, in various cellars. In, in 90, worked the har- 90 harvest for uh, Cameron, and then in August of 91, we uh, went off to to spend uh, uh, six weeks in in the Rhone, working our way up, and uh, arrived in, in Burgundy on uh, September 23rd uh, for for a harvest. Later in harvest, uh, it was a beautiful walk uh, down the Rue du Grand Cru between Maurice Saint-Denis and Javier faint and we sort of said, you know, we could see doing this. We could see doing this. But we also were realistic because at, at that time, when we knew that, that Oregon was still almost entirely family-run there were very few uh, outside jobs available and uh, we were realistic about what our chances were of finding jobs so when we came back to Oregon and started to look we didn't have any real conception that we'd be working in the industry uh, full-time and to that matter we didn't really start working in the industry full-time for years except for that Amy started in, in uh, spring of '92, working as uh, uh, in the tasting room in Bethel Heights, and filled in for uh, six or eight weeks, I think, mm-hmm. uh, in the um, in the cellar there when they they had an opening. And I was going to uh, spend the '92 harvest as the uh, uh, lab rat for uh, Van Duser under uh, Al Alzevedo but uh, what happened is, is uh, the assistant winemaker there, Gary Horner, actually took my job. At jo-
2: Bethel Heights, right? Well,
0: I was going to say he took my job uh, as a lab rat for Al Alzevedo so I took his job as the assistant winemaker at Bethel Heights <laughs> and worked the '92 harvest with. Ted and Terry at Bethel Heights, which I went on to do for another 10 years. I worked 92-02 at Bethel Heights uh, while doing other things. And at some points in time, I worked, I worked three harvests for a couple of different vintages in there. And um, it was also with some prodding from, from Ted and Terry that they were tired of listening to Amy and I say, well, maybe we should make some wine. And they're like, oh, how are we gonna do it? And they were like, no, just get over it. So they said we'll give you some fruit. We'll save some fruit from Bethel Heights. They called up um, Dan and Helen at uh, Freedom Hill. And they said they'll they'll sell you some fruit. We talked to a couple of other people, and that's how we ended up with 210 cases of uh, Pinot Noir and um, 190 cases of actually 191 cases of Chardonnay in 1993.
2: Well, we felt so lucky that they were able to share that fruit um, with that they would share that fruit with us because I mean to have first of all 1993 was an epically amazing vintage Uh, and those two vineyards are amazing plus we had Ted and Terry whispering in our ear and then I ended up spending the 92 harvest working for Lynn Pennerash at Rex Hill so we had all of this advice coming from the community and it's still that way in a rough vintage people get on the phone and call their friends and figure out how to handle things. You know, what are you doing? My, my vineyard's not coming in for, until next week. So what's going on in your low, lower elevation vineyard? How are you handling it? What's working, what's not? And that's part of the reason I think Terry Castile felt like he could be, you know, say, here, take some of my fruit. I'll help you make the wine if you get run into trouble. And then when I, after harvest at Rex Hill, screwed up all my courage and went to interview with david let because terry castile had said yeah i think david needs somebody to help him in the winery but i'm not sure he knows that yet so i was like oh great <laughs> so i remember interviewing with him and being like so terrified i could barely even listen to the words that were coming out of his, his mouth and um uh,
0: She's forgetting one of her proudest moments, which was after announcing to her mother that uh, she was getting a degree in philosophy, who uh, promptly said, well, what good is that for? It was when she told David that she had a degree in philosophy, and he said, yes, I do too. And it was part of the reason why she got the job, that she gets to tell her mother that, in fact, a philosophy degree did get her a job.
2: So I said, how much work do you think you have for me, David? And he said, I don't know, like three or four days, gross topping Chardonnay, and I worked there for five years straight. Um, And it was a tremendous opportunity for me to learn from the person. Papa Pino. Papa Pino, and a tremendous personal relationship as well. Um, Not with just David, but with their whole family. and that's why we're here in this funny little building in McMinnville, is because I could run down here, and work two harvests and sleep at the winery and and um, do Westry harvest overnight and work for David during the day, all blurry-eyed, and um, it, it was just a great experience. His his vineyard team is incredible and taught me how to speak Rancho Spanish instead of my my you know hoity-toity school Spanish, and, <laughs> and now I have a crazy accent apparently, but um, yeah, it was one of the most pivotal experiences of my career. And then I left there to work for IPNC in 1989, and I haven't been able to leave that job because I, I love it so much. So I, I do work harvest here, I do bl- you know blending here, I somehow juggle that with our now 14-year-old identical twin boys, Leo and Soren, who give back. They rack our whole cellar every summer for us. Um, they also work ip for a good solid week every year. Um, I'm skipping way ahead, though. Yep. So, so go, let's go back to where, where we left off here.
0: Well, if we go back to, to the why wine. Some of it is, is goes back to Amy's talk about uh, about balance and coming out of out of uh, out of Reed with a degree in philosophy, it was looking at, at what what is balance, and so I pursued three things: it was to look what would law school be, what would graduate school be, and what would wine be. And wine was always uh, something around me because um, Dick and Nancy Ponzi and. Jenny Adelsheim were friends of my parents. I ran around those vineyards as a child in uh, the early 1970s. And Pat, Pat Campbell was uh, was uh, a classmate of my uh, mom's from from uh, school, and they still play tennis together. And so it was something in the back of back of my mind. You know, there was always this 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 thing. And then with help from John Paul and, and starting to be in the industry, it seemed uh, a, a quite a balanced life. It was something that we fell into but seemed consistent with what we wanted to do.
1: So once you made that decision, once you were thinking about wine, how did you go about... You obviously had all these influences in your life, but how did you go about learning the trade and learning uh, what you want, what you how you would actually do what you wanted to well, do. Well,
2: that question has a very funny answer. So, um, <laughs> when we were finishing up at Reed, um, we were living in a big house with a bunch of other students over in Southeast Portland, and next door was John Paul and his wife Terry and their two kids, and who were really young at the time. Every time I ever to see them, I'm like, oh my god, I babysat you when you were two. Um, <laughs> So John would come over and if was like free late, like easy labor source, this is great. I don't even have to be organized. So he would come over and bang on our window, which because our room was in front of the house and there was a big front porch, and be like, hey, do you guys want to come and help bottle or do you want to help rack the cellar or do you want to come and help prune? And he was willing to show us our way around a cellar. And so you know, we happily did that, and he was very patient with us. And um, he kind of taught us the ropes, you know, the basics of what it takes to be useful during harvest. And once you know how to be useful during harvest, you can get a job anywhere in the world, especially then, before you know, it was so hard to work in other countries. Um, and so that's how we got the jobs in Burgundy uh, at, at Dujac and de L'Arleau. Which were ugh, incredible experiences that were just like gifted to us by David Adelstein, and and my only regret is that we didn't spend more time bouncing around the world like a lot of cellarats did at the time, um, getting more experience. Because once you start a winery, you're in Oregon every harvest. Um, maybe when the twins are out of the fly out of the coop, we can go to New Zealand and work a harvest. Um.
0: But it, it's also, I think that that, not getting a, a technical degree, you have the opportunity to spend an inordinate amount of time developing uh, the importance. So taste, 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 and we did a lot of that. We mm-hmm. between you know barrel tasting in in Oregon, barrel tasting in Burgundy, going to. Do as many different tastings as we could, uh, talking uh, to people that we respected, um, getting a historical perspective. I think that, that one of the important things about uh, Oregon, the important you see this in, in, in Burgundy, is the idea of the history of the place I mean, burgundy has it in, in encoded in in uh in the vineyards and, and encoded in 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 the aoc but what's encoded in in those those you know minutia and in some cases you know you have a, a, a bourgogne blanc that's one meter away from montrachet but that which is encoded is the function of over a thousand years of observation by the Cisternian monks. And we're a long ways away from that. We're, in fact, we're centuries away from that type of, of observation. And as a philosopher and a skeptic and someone who's, who's not trying to, to be involved in anything but the, the observations of these types of things. The development of, of, of what we're trying to do and will continue to try to do is to look at those observations, listen to the history that, that informs them, listen to what people are saying around who are also trying to make the same types of observations, and continue that uh, dialectic between our vines, our ground, and the wines that they're making. And it's with the wines that are they're making. I mean, if if we're to be honest with ourselves as people who believe in terroir, then we have to surrender ourselves as winemakers to what comes comes to us from from the ground. And people who have technical degrees are suffering from an overt exterior training in um, in wine science as opposed to wine history or or wine uh growing you know in in french you have you have vitico, uh, vigneron or you had you know you don't have a wine maker. there is no such word and that's a i think that's a, a very important philosophical difference from from what you see in the new world and i as a self trained uh, individual in this industry. Take that very seriously.
2: Yeah, I'm going to... Push call, back? Call, yeah, I'm going to call you out there a little bit, because <laughs> there have been a lot of times when... Um, it's been a tricky vintage when we've called on, you know, people who have strong technical backgrounds, you know, education, graduate degrees in oenology and viticulture, and been like, what are we going to do? Um, oh, yeah? cite a source. Oh, uh, Anthony King, uh, David Lett had a, had a technical background. Um, certainly Lynn Penarash.
0: Yeah, and David, I, David Lett uh, <clears throat> said that, that the biggest thing that he needed to do after 1970
2: was to forget it. <laughs> His quote, not mine. Also, Lynn Scott, So, who is one of your mm-hmm. dearest friends. And he calls me about Pinot Noir. Mm, yeah, well. Goes both ways. I
0: mean, I I mean, the nice thing I would say. And he has his master's is from the University of Montpellier, a French school, not in a U.S. school.
2: There are advantages and disadvantages. I guess the the thing that we were very privileged to have was, I mean, we came from Reed, a small liberal arts college, like Linfield is a small liberal arts college. So you know what it's like to have a really strong sense of community. We moved into the wine industry, which was then a very small community and very tight-knit. Everybody took care of each other. Also, nobody wants Oregon wine to be bad and going out into the market, because it's bad for all of us if that happens. And so we felt comfortable being not just self-taught, but community-taught, because people were behind us, they stood behind us, and they helped us along. And we've tried to do that as we have pursued our path as well.
1: What were some of the the challenges uh, of owning a vineyard and a winery, especially some of the unforeseen challenges once you guys sort of got Westry off the ground?
2: Um, Having twins? (laughs) 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 That got me. I mean, the first year wasn't so bad when they were still, we we, were just you know, they're babies and you could put them in their car seats and upend a barrel and you could just be racking barrels or doing punch downs, they'd be like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm super entertained. The next year when they could walk and climb ladders and I caught one of them Climb! I don't remember which one was which. Um, Le- I think I think it was. Both
0: at the top of the tank. Yeah, it
2: was Leo. Leo, I think, went up first, and then Soren climbed up behind him and was trying to throw him off the ladder <laughs> so he could get by. And this is a concrete floor, so we're like, all right, no more, no more babies in the winery. We're, this is done now. And um, yeah, so that's that was challenging. Um, I think it,
0: one of the one of the challenges that when we got into the industry and it was still a very uh, community industry, it was very it was still very small, and um, it was possible to to play the 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 millionaires game without any money. Uh, the biggest challenge is to me to still survive and still to function in, in what has become an a increasingly competitive industry, an increasingly competitive market, and a market that is no longer as uh, community-oriented as it was when we entered it now. You know this, this is the beginning of my 30th vintage and Amy's 28th vintage And it is a very, very different animal than it was when we started all those years ago. And when, you know, this is Westry's, uh, um, shows you I'm starting to lose count. What are we, 25, 26, 27, 27, Westry's 27th vintage. It's a very different animal and requires a different skill set than when we entered it and you could. Cover all the bases as as an individual, and if you couldn't, then you could you could find people that you could ask to, to help you through a certain type of situation, and I don't see that as any more uh, possible. It's 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 uh, subdivided, and and those subdivisions are more professional, which doesn't isn't. Uh, in and of itself uh, a bad thing. It's just a, that it's, it's a different type of animal than when, when we got in it and it was, was very much, you were capable of, of doing and learning uh, to do everything as an individual.
2: Right. I mean, on the other hand, it's really nice to go to, you know, say Georgia and be marketing your wine and, and have not have people say, well, where's Oregon? you make wine there, why? <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore, that's, that's, that's a huge step forward. Um, so yeah, I mean the growth is amazing and it's hugely positive for on a number of different levels. Um, but yeah, it's, it's take, taken a lot of adaptation.
1: Um, so when you, you mentioned some of the mentors you had getting industry, you mentioned, obviously you mentioned David Lett um, and you also mentioned that you're trying to kind of pass that on. So. Uh, and, and you, you mentioned before the interview that you you're kind of use this place, is this space to help other people. So um, is that something you still see in the industry? Do you still see a lot of that kind of veteran, veterans helping newcomers or is that changing also?
2: Um, I think...
1: Well, to let's see, we, to a certain
0: extent, uh, we've launched in, this, in the sense that we've offered space and, and advice to at least Three wineries that have come out of out of, of our space, so we feel like we've we've done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we we've seen a number of of other people who have given um, individuals you know assistant winemaker positions or who have had cellar um, you know started as cellar rats and moved up to cellar cellar. Uh, uh, masters and moved into assistant winemakers and, and you know, had the opportunity to uh, start their own labels. So yes, I do. I, I continue to, to
1: yeah. think that that's true. Agree. So you talked also about IPNC, obviously your other, your other big role. So tell us kind of about how you got started with IPNC and then sort of how, you, how you've seen your role since you started in 1989. Well, that has changed a lot too
2: um <laughs> so i joined the board of directors in i think 1988 and um well, and about IP a year was 87 right that's the first, indi- first i'm sorry 1998 yeah but that, um, 87 was the first 87 IP was and the first ipnc yeah, yeah. um i joined and joined the board of directors in 1998 maria Stewart was the executive director then um she got pregnant, and decided that that was too much of a job for her, especially since her first child was born during IPNC, during her first IPNC, on Saturday of IPNC, so I, I, you know, I would have a little PTSD around that if I were her. So, so she told me she wanted to step down, and um, I decided to step into that position. And at that time, It was pretty what seems like it it seemed really complex but it has you know become so much more complex and so much more ambitious and so much more refined um and it's been just an amazing experience to watch it grow and to watch its presence on the the international wine scene become so much more well known and it's given me an amazing opportunity to meet so many people from around the world, media guests, but winemakers mostly from all over the place and um, chefs from all over the place. But I think what keeps me going back year after year more than anything else is just the sense of collaboration. It's incredible because we're a two and a half person office most of the year. And then we balloon to 300 volunteers, all of the Linfield students that do all the food service all of the Linfield staff that sets up all the tables and chairs and all the logistics. Um, and then, of course, I mean, there's the whole conference and events planning crew. And then we, we have additional hired staff for that week as well. So, you know, you were talking about, I don't know, 600 to 800 people probably that work for that week or at least the weekend to, to put that thing on. Uh, you know including over 300 volunteers that all need to be managed by two and a half people um so once you know, it was stressful leading up to the event and then once all of the you know the reinforcements show up you're like oh that's how this is going to actually take place because you're here <laughs> and these people are so dedicated and have been coming back year after year after year and it's it's almost like like summer camp, to like see them all again. Everybody's so happy, everybody's so um, excited to roll out this new program because it's, you know, we reinvented every year and every year it's like, okay, the mountain's over here and it needs to move over here. Everybody get their shovels out and then by the end of the weekend it's over there. And it's just, that's just an amazingly uh, gratifying experience to Work in collaboration with so many people from all, all over the world to do that.
0: So she talks about volunteers. I'm
2: <laughs> yeah, one, he's, I'm he's, volunteers. he's definitely and one of my I, best I volunteers. I was
0: a, a volunteer before she was executive uh, director. Uh, my first IPNC was 1989, and I've pretty much done. I think I've missed one in there somewhere, but I've been a, a volunteer. Uh, in the wine room so so it 's the all the logistics of the approximately six hundred cases of of wine uh, down to moving individual bottles to individual places. Uh, we pride ourselves by calling us the most uh, uh, detail oriented distribution uh, <laughs> company in in the world but, but there are in in the wine room, which is up to about uh, about eight of us now, but there are people that have uh, a whole lot of, of us that are over twenty year volunteers in in that position, and there are a lot of people who have volunteered for See at this point in time for over twenty years, and there are real people that come in from all over the country to um, to volunteer as it is, in some sense, a, a, a summer camp. It's a reunion, it's a chance to see these people that we see once a year. And the camaraderie ship and the collaboration is, is part of the experience, and along with pulling out your shovel and
1: moving dirt from point A to point B.
0: <laughs>
1: How has the you mentioned the kind of how the logistics have gotten complicated how has like the reputation of IPNC progressed since you've been a part of it?
2: Um, I guess you know it's it's progressed a pace with the Oregon wine industry the IPNC has definitely gained national international attention and that happened from the beginning because it was such a a strange little event Um, the idea that winemakers would come together not in a competition but to just basically share ideas and to include interested consumers and trade all together in this weekend that's a pretty unusual idea and that concept all originated in the back room at Nix in 1986 um, with winemakers and you know people that lived in the community they were like yeah you know this would be something that would be fun to do basically Mm -hmm. it wasn't it was never meant to be this massive marketing effort and it still doesn't it's still really not a massive marketing effort it really brings people together and that's what gives me the most gratification it 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 does help people market their wine the first year that Westry was included in IPNC we sold all our weekend our wine that weekend Um, so we bring, in, I mean, we, we bring in a lot of new consumers and, and kind of convert them into Pinot fanatics over the course of three days. Because you could come to IPNC and not know anything about Pinot Noir. And by the end of the three-day period, you'll know more than like 90% of the people out there. And love Oregon and love wine and probably want to come back. Mm -hmm. And so it's this, yes, that means it's a marketing event because it it does those things. But what's really beautiful about it is that it just brings people together Mm -hmm. over food and wine, which is an age-old tradition that we'd love to uphold.
0: Mm -hmm. I think she's she's also selling herself short because there are, almost no other places in the the world in which you can sit down at a table and there's a world-class burgundian there's a world-class producer from the alto adige that 99.999 percent of americans probably didn't even know about and you know his english is good his jokes are funny and his (laughs) wines are outrageous uh this is this is something that, that IPNC does, and in in the you know words of of, um, <clears throat> of great art, flattery is is imitation, and you know you don't see a whole lot of Cabernet or Syrah events, but there are like eighteen different pinot noir events all <laughs> over the world all modeled on IPNC, and IPNC was the first, and it was the first before any Syrah event or any uh, Cabernet event. And it was created because of very good relationships between Oregon and Burgundy, relationships that are just going stronger every day as we get more people from, from Burgundy moving here to, to make wine. Mm-hmm. Um, relationships that are, are expanding, because we now have people from Germany, people from Alsace, uh, we've had dabblings from, from Champagne, who are all coming here to the northern Willamette Valley because of the reputation of how good the fruit is, how distinctive it is, and how classic it can be. Mm-hmm. And that's as much a function of IPNC as it is to the initial people like David Adelsheim who consistently went over to uh, Burgundy, but also David. David spoke, and I think he still speaks fluent German, and went very often to to uh, Germany to talk to people about growing grapes and and uh, talk to people, especially at, at the time in, in the early 80s when there was a lot more people trying to to make Riesling in that period of time. There was a dip and now there are many more people coming back trying to, to make Riesling and realizing that, that Riesling is, is something that may really have success here. Mm-hmm. Um, so there has been this very, very long tradition the valley of collaboration writ large, whether it's just between uh, uh, local winemakers or winemakers in, in other regions. And IPNC brings this all together for a weekend with, with the, the average couple from, from Atlanta or, or uh, San Diego or Tokyo. And everybody sits at the same table, and everybody eats good, good food, and drinks good wine, and that's the great leveling field.
2: Well, to give you a, a very specific example, um, one of the spin-off events from IPNC is it's the it takes place in in Tokyo, and the. Originator, a man named Yoshiji Sato, uh, came to IPNC several many years ago, like ten years ago, and he loved it so much that he kind of recreated it in Tokyo. He, he's also a wine journalist for a prominent newspaper. He came back to IPNC. The Oregon Wine Board um, helped pay for his expensive expenses, and um, he wrote a huge piece and on IPNC with beautiful pictures and then the wine board had it translated so we could actually read all the wonderful things he said about it. And now I have this file folder of people from Korea and China and Japan and Australia, media people who want to come and get a free ticket to IPNC because they want to see what it's all about. And not not just as a result of that article, but that has been a trend that I've been noting over the last several years. And so we have a media committee meeting this afternoon to weigh the cost-benefit of having these people come from so far when not that many wineries in Oregon market in those areas, although that's growing and growing, but if you take the long game, then yeah, we should absolutely be looking for media in those areas. So, so it's always so growing.
0: Another part of the, of the collaboration, the way that these, these you know, the, the, the tentacles spread out, uh, I don't remember how many years ago, um, but the founder and director of the Slow Food Movement came from Turin, Italy, and was so impressed. Uh, Talked to, to Amy, and Amy went over to uh, Slow Food at their at their every two year festival and uh, took uh, six, eight organ pianos.
2: I think six. Six. Yeah.
0: And uh, made a presentation on the, on the professional side of, of small organ producers that were doing. Um, uh, you know, sustainable types of, of productions of distinctive organ pinot uh, Mars. And it was one of the very, very first of the seminars that to, to be entirely signed up for and, <laughs> and completed. And um, I'm not trying to put words in her mouth, but she sells herself short on these situations. Uh, she said that, that the first... Uh, presentation was a, a little bit startling because you're you're wearing a headphone set and it's simultaneously translated into six languages so there's a delay. But like after delay and she started to get response and you see people's faces that it was it went on beautifully so I was a little jealous that she got a trip <laughs> yeah, to she got a trip to Italy. <laughs> <laughs> that was and a pretty big was, win. It was like right at the end of harvest. So like I'm sitting <laughs> and finishing, finishing up harvest. harvest and she's in Italy going Having yeah. a, a great
1: time at slow food. A little bitter
2: here. <laughs> yeah, that was probably best IP and c prick ever.
1: <laughs> and you're also uh, you're also the winery chair on the board of directors for Salud as well. So tell us a bit about why uh, Salud. Oh, so I, I was. It was, I was no I'm no longer. Sorry. Yeah. I didn't say it was.
2: Um, yeah, there's a huge problem, obviously, in this country with providing health care to not just undocumented workers, but to people of other cultures. So as you know, an educated white female, I have trouble negotiating the healthcare system. As somebody who is not of this culture, even if you have a valid social security number, it's still incredibly challenging and scary. And you probably have relatives who are un- undocumented. You probably have friends who are undocumented. There's a tremendous sense of fear Tremendous sense of fear in approaching any sort of, you know, monolithic institution such as a hospital.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, you know, and then there's just the run-of-the-mill, like a referral. Like, what do I do? What, like, so now, what do I do with this referral? And yeah, it, it, it's just. So, so it's very one of my biggest frustrations as a viticulturalist right now is that if there are undocumented people and I'm sure there are I mean, basically the situation is if, if I'm legally obligated to see documentation that looks to be real and I have copies of that on all of our workers I'm sure some of it is real and some of it is not however I can't buy health insurance for them because they will cross-check social security numbers. They can't take advantage of the Oregon Health Plan or the ACA because if, if they don't have a valid social security number. So all these people have fallen directly through mm-hmm. the safety net of healthcare and have landed on the ground. And I know of people who have been too scared to go to the hospital and so they suffer through their heart attack and have died at home. And this is heart-wrenching to me. And Leda Garside and Maria McCandless at Salud are some of the most dedicated people to, this, to fixing this problem that I've ever seen. And they do it on the ground, one patient at a, at a time. Leda is the head of providing services. And I know that she's been to the houses of our employees to just help walk them through situations um, you know if you don't speak any English and there's not a translator certainly when uh, translation services are getting a lot better when I started in the industry one of my first things I did I think it was my first harvest no it was my second harvest at Irie um, the vineyard manager's brand new wife who had just come up from Mexico had a baby in the middle of harvest and had a c-section and so uh, I was asked to please go to her follow-up appointment, like, whatever it is, four days later, and translate. Awkward, <laughs> but at least I was or her kid, which is the, the norm. You, you get, like, she didn't have any other kids, but you, you have a six-year-old in that position or a six-year-old in that position of, of walking your parents through their divorce proceedings. I've seen all of these things happen in my years in the industry and the commu- that, that, that community of people that is the basis of support for our whole industry, this industry would not exist without them. I don't know how they even function. It's shocking. Actually, a, a Linfield student came um, to me for an informational interview five or six years ago. And uh, he was the, I guess, the leader of the Hispanic American, like, club or group or whatever it was at Linfield. And you know, we were talking just about logistics and this, that, and the other. But by the end, we kind of got down into the nitty-gritty, and he said, yeah, I live in Salem with my parents. And I still do all the shopping. I was like, why do you do all the shopping, you know, in addition to all your studies? It must be hard." He said, well, I I don't want my parents to go to the store. I said, why? He said, well, they're undocumented and there are these vans, these white vans that sit outside the parking lot of Winco and Costco and uh, whatever, Walmart. Uh, And they actually make like PSAs over the store intercom and say the white vans are outside, stay in the store. And I was like, "Well, who is in the white vans?" And he said, "Well, I don't know." And I was like, "Why you have a social security number. You're documented. you're born here. you're a U.S. citizen. Why don't you go and find out? They'll come after my parents." It's very complicated and tragic. And the fact that these people are so dedicated to our family, our grapes our business, and they put in so many hours of backbreaking labor, it's just, it's a great gift to this industry, and I think we should keep that top of mind every day.
0: That's why salute. <laughs>
2: That's why salute.
0: <laughs> Which by the, by the way, uh, thanks to, to Tom Helly, uh the Linfield Nurses Program, uh, in conjunction with with Salud, has made major uh, contributions by providing internships for the nursing program, which has turned around and and provided uh, important infrastructure for Salud. So that has been a win-win for both um, programs and organizations, and is one more uh, Value that that uh, Tom has provided to the industry, and the industry has turned around and, and provided to Linfield. And um, uh, what's Jeff's last name? In who's... Uh, Peterson. Peterson. Yep, Peterson, who uh, actually uh, helped us out for the first time in the, in the wine room last uh, last year. He got his his first taste of what it means to. Uh, be part of the of the great wine distribution system, but uh, <laughs> he uh, produced what I thought was one of the great uh, one of the great lines that you know it took uh, it took Jeff and, and Tom uh, uh, was it two Episcopalians to, to bring <laughs> wine to a
1: Baptist? College. <laughs> It's very weird having wine archives next to Baptist archives. I got to tell
0: you. We're all going to miss Miss Tom. I really have enjoyed Tom through the last few years. And I, I, even though, even, You're not the only one. <laughs> even, even though I, I was a volunteer at IPNC for many, many years uh, under Dr. Bull and, and met her on many occasions, I never really had a chance to, to have a conversation with her. But I had many good conversations with, with Dr. Hallie and I'm going to miss him.
2: And he's going to be an invaluable loss. Type well. Hopefully, we'll have a wonderful person who comes in and is as supportive of IPNC as Tom has been. But it's been wonderful working with him over the years. Well,
1: I,
0: I think that Linfield is not going to be able to get rid of the wine program and and, no. I, and IPNC. I no. think
2: Tom's he's
1: built it up. Built it up too much. But he's pretty irreplaceable. Yeah, <laughs> he's been wonderful for us as well, of course. So we are all going to miss him as well. So as you uh, as you look back, what are you proudest of? What are your biggest accomplishments in the Oregon wine industry?
2: Um, you know, I always wonder whose recycling bins our wine bottles end up in, and who enjoyed our wine, what conversation they had over it, what they ate with it. A lot of, we made a lot of bottles of wine over the Mm -hmm. years. And you know, there are countless stories out there that we'll never hear. We hear some of them from our customers back. We have some pretty awesome stories from our customers.
0: We do do have the occasional uh, voicemail um,
2: at like 11 somebody, o'clock at night yeah somebody somebody <laughs> I'm having a volume wine It's so it, awesome yeah but, <laughs> that's, that's very total. gratifying <laughs> i
0: mean we, there there are are voicemails from from customers people that, that we know over the years but there are voicemails from strangers people mm-hmm. that we've never met that read it off a, off the back of the bottle read the number off the back of the bottle or read a cork in Chicago or or Montana or California that called just to say You know, we've enjoyed this bottle of wine. It's this type of evening or it's, you know, it's 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 mac and cheese Tuesday (laughs) and that it made a real impression it made a, a difference and the combination of of knowing that we did something that in, enhanced somebody's endeavor, and that food and food and wine elevated the experience that we as human beings. I mean, we're we're creatures of 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 experience and pleasure. We're we especially in this modern age, have become so much more obsessed with with visual information in in the age of the smartphone Mm -hmm. and the computer and and digital information and we're in a business that is entirely about the sense of taste and the sense of smell and the the sense of, of touch and only a little bit especially with Pinot Noir where you know People talk about color, but it's color is irrelevant in Pinot Noir. So that you can, it comes to you that you know you've made that that difference in in somebody's life, even if it's only fleeting. Mm-hmm. But that, in conjunction with the fact that that, as she said, we made a lot of wine and and we get to we get to open a bottle every so often with friends and and family, and have that that combination of of. A historical moment, the the movable feast that 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 bottle represents from when we, and we can say, oh yeah, I remember you know, this happened in '93 and and you know we like it, for us we had a bottle of uh, of our first vintage of, of Oracle '04 of Oracle the other day, and we remember '04 because. And we don't remember a lot from that era because the the twins were 17 months in '04, but 04 was also the first vintage that they did Pigeage, and uh, it was also the first vintage that we got some fruit off of our old vine Pinot, and so we have a very clear memory of of the twins with with about eight inches of old vine Pinot doing their first Pigeage, stamping around stamping around in it, and, and it was cold and, and, you know, they weren't really into it. But more importantly, we had a five-gallon bucket of warm water and, and you know, to, for them to... to and Soren didn't like it. He would like, fight him in there, got enough and pour a little bit on him so he, was, he wouldn't have too much sugar and got him a towel and he ran away. But Leo, you know, the, the showman, he figured out that, that this was something he, he knocked down in that bucket Looked over it at us and he burst out, and he got exactly the, the the response from the adults there. He continued that until he was out of water and it was cold again. And having that 04, seeing how it evolved, sharing it with 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 the with the twins, and being able to recount the story that's that's part of of this this tension between something that's organic and evolves, and, and it, it reaches a peak, and then it fades. And that's, that's the, the story arc of any human. It's the story arc of, of the wine that we make. And you hope that somewhere along, along the story arc of, of a wine, that, that, you know, that contributes to someone's experience, and it's an enhancement, and an enjoyment, and a pleasure. And every so often, we get a little feedback about that, and that's great. So yes, that's what, what we try to do, and that, and crawling through our vines uh, uh, and, and tending to them and watching them grow, and, and you, know, you, you find at this time of year, you go back and you remember what, a vine from last year, and you see what you did, and what you did right, what you did wrong, how it grew and whether you kind of nudged it in the right direction or it didn't like what you were doing at all and so it decided to do something entirely else and then you have to listen to it and say, okay, well, you didn't didn't really like that haircut, so (laughs) how about we try something slightly different and see if you like this one?
2: Yeah, I think also, surprisingly, Having winery has been a great parenting tool for us, in that Leo and Soren know. You know, at first they learned what it looked like to work an 18-hour day of physical labor. You know, it's not like it's glamorous. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's <laughs> you know, it's driving tractors. It's cleaning houses. It's cleaning buckets. It's, it's basically a lot of major dishwashing of you know, presses and crusher stemmers and stuff like that. And now that they're older, when they come out, they're not on their iPads. They want to participate. And so they're working all day. This is probably against child labor laws, but... um, But that's what they wanted. We couldn't pull them away from it. They want to participate. And they don't care that they, you know, they're picky grapes alongside of our pickers and... um, there's not a racial tension there. Mm-hmm. That makes me very gratified. They then come back into the winery and they work the afternoon with our, an evening. And, you know, we have meals together and, you know, it's just on the weekends, but still they get the, this experience and it's kind of a lost art. There aren't very many farm families out there anymore. And that's what winemaking is. It's farming. So it's been a unique way to bring them up. I mean, I don't know if they'll take over the wiring or not. My guess is not. They'll be like super nerdy physicists. So if you're watching this, Leo and Soren later, <laughs> you do what you want to do. But
0: <laughs> mm, Last I checked, uh, University of Dijon not on the list. It's MIT. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine.
1: It does lead me to my next question, though, which is what is the future for Westry?
2: I don't know. It depends on, you know, not only what the twins want to do, but what our nieces and nephews want to do Uh, we've been talking about putting a tasting room up at the vineyard our vineyard site is gorgeous but now they've just done all these renovations to the street here so it's it's we like being in the community here in McMinnville you know you can run down to Irie and get a bag of so2 on I think we still, add, oh, oh, still we still, still owe Jason, Jason a bag of so2 <laughs> from harvest um, we, we swap for, forklifts so regularly because everybody's got a forklift like one of us always has a forklift breakdown during harvest that we joke about just renting one and parking it at the corner of of 10th and alpine and leaving the key like hidden on the tire so that we just have access to it Um,
0: yeah because in in, at the beginning of the harvest our forklift wouldn't go in reverse and remy's forklift her rotator didn't work, <laughs> so I was like, "You can borrow our rotator, and just you'll have to use your backup, your forklift to pull ours backwards." <laughs> um, so you can use our forklift because <laughs> we did. I we did our entire first day of crushing by having to to position things so that we could lift up boxes and, and roll the forklift backwards. No reverse. <laughs> part of part of harvest. Part of the fun of it is is all of the. Innovation on the fly. That's, I think that's one of the things that keeps us coming back. You know. It's true.
2: It's a new challenge every year.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Fruit's a new challenge every year, but there's also all, all of the technical, the logistical. Well,
2: it's like getting all the Christmas lights out, and you're like, oh, they, they don't work again. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they worked when we took them off the tree last year, but they don't work
1: this year. What about the future of the Oregon wine industry in general? What do you see happening in the next 5, 10, 20 years? there 's still a lot of land to be planted out there
2: um, I think when we came into the industry, somebody told me I think maybe it was david adelheim that you know the best vineyard probably hasn 't been planted yet, and we know so much more than we knew then, but I still think there 's so much more to discover and Colonial selection and rootstock selection is something that we have a long distance to go on. Um, and then of course, national marketing is and something that the Brown Valley Wine Association is working really hard on.
0: Uh, I think that, that there are very interesting vineyards to be discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm continuing to search for uh Vineyards out in the, in the coast range that are planted on the soil type pea vine. It's a slate soil type. Uh, it's the only slate soil type that I know of that's in the northern Lima Valley and uh, tying into to the discussion about Jimmy. Uh, he had two vintages of of, uh, of a uh, vineyard from the, the coast range on pea vine, and it was outstanding. Myron used to make a single vineyard from the Scouton Vineyard. Mm-hmm also on p-vine, outstanding. So I think I agree with Amy strongly that there are very interesting vineyard sites that have not been found. I think that like we're seeing in uh, almost every single other growing region in in, uh, the world, that there's going to be a, a continued bifurcation in the industry between small and large. Uh, there are going to be more large uh, wineries. I think uh, whether Jackson Family or A to Z or to the rest of these are going to get bigger. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be more and more uh, wineries uh, our size that are, are you know, just 4,000 cases and stay that way. I think we're going to see more uh, assistant winemaker side projects that are in the, the you know the four and five hundred case category. Uh, I think we're going to see a some work in new varieties. Uh, I'm not as convinced as some people that that. Uh, Noir is going to become a minority. Mm-hmm. I think that that's uh, an incorrect assumption. Um, I do think that, that, that uh, grapes that have great or varieties, that have great uh, elasticity in their, um, in their uh, styles, Riesling and, and Cab Franc are the ones that come to mind right up front. I think we're going to see more of those.
2: Well, and it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out with climate change as well because, because Pinot Noir is kind of an indicator species in terms of climate. It Some really.
0: Species and varietal.
2: Varietal. One, fair. one species. Um, it, it has to ripen in a cool climate, and as the climate warms, I mean, Burgundy, the, the the Burgundian perspective on this is just like, this is already happening. We're having hailstorms every year and it's because of climate change. Um, here we've had a string of warm vintages and I I think, you know, if you talk to Greg Jones, he would say that has to do more with the El, El Nino La Nina effect, but he certainly, he gave a seminar at IPNC several years ago and everybody who walked out of it was like, Ugh. <laughs> Um, because it's real and it's happening, and it will f- affect Pinot Noir first. Mm-hmm. So,
1: interesting. What advice would you have for someone who wanted to join the Oregon wine industry today? How much money do they have? <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and and uh, yeah, <laughs> you really have to th- think about why you want to get into the the business. Do you want to get into it because you wanna talk about it at cocktail parties or do you wanna get into it because you like washing and barrels? And you, you love crafting great wine. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: do you wanna get in do you wanna get into it because you have spent a lot of time tasting and you have a vision or do you wanna get into it because you have a technical degree and you want a job?
2: Which is fine, but, but you have to find your right niche in the wine industry depending on what your answers to those questions are. You know, if what you really want to do is prune vines all day and be outside, that's one thing. Expect to make a certain amount and it's not going to get bigger. Um, or start a very small winery and do it all yourself. But know that that's going to be really, really challenging because you're not going to have a, a national sales director because you have to sell the wine. You can't just make it. Um, so yeah, shop around and think of all the different places that you could fit into the wine industry and what your place would be and how, how fulfilling it really would be for you.
0: Yeah, I think yeah, it comes down to what, what is it that why? Why do you want to get into the industry? There are so many questions about about whether it's about ego. Um, you know, I have great respect, and I've known Adam Campbell for a long time, but I have no interest in building an empire. I have much more interest in, in the minutiae of, you know, the, the 88 barrels of Pinot Noir I have, I, can, I barely can keep a top of it right now, much less, you know, 300 or 500 or 800 or however many uh, atoms up to. Um, do you do it for real passion and if so do you need an empire and passion i don't necessarily think that those are the, are the same i mean alexander the great had had both empire and passion but that's a unique individual in history
2: well and i think adam is unique in that way too and that he is just he's um, david adelsheim is that way yeah absolutely they, they they want to just like grow learn be curious grow learn i mean it's just this sort of cycle of of growth that and that there's nothing wrong with that. Um,
0: I didn't it's just, say there was. I just said it's not me.
2: Yeah, it's just not us. You know, I I I like I
0: like the 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 detail in in, in the small, mm-hmm. which is not to say that that there isn't you know interest in detail in in the large. It's just not who I am. Um, but there are, there are people that, as Amy said, do it for, for having it in the cocktail. There are people that, that do it because it goes back to the balance that we talked about. You know, if you are the small, then you have this incredible, you don't think about cycles in days, you don't think about cycles in weeks, you think about cycles in, in quarters and growing. Mm-hmm. You know, this this time of year is this balance between what's going on in individual barrels and what's going on in individual plants as you're pruning them. Hmm. Then you get to the, the middle of the growing season and you're you're up early in the morning for for spring and you're in the after, in here in the afternoon trying to to rack and get, get you know, wines that are finished up um, ML that are fragile, uh, protected and and away for the season and you know come the the end of the growing season you're you're looking at harvest and you're you're fine-tuning your your crop levels and you're getting ready for bottling and you're starting to to haul equipment out that you haven't you know looked at for a year and try to remember what what it was when you put it away you know uh, did you miss something did you have to uh uh replace something did you blow a fuse did you you know was how was it functioning a year ago because you don't look at things in, in 9 to 5, and you generally don't look at things from Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very different perspective, but that goes back to what the individual is, and it goes back to what, what they're looking for. So I think that the answer to the question is extremely individual. I don't see any generic answer to it at all. Just be prepared to work hard. <laughs> <laughs> Either, either that, or, 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 you know, again, just delegate and sit, sit on your director's chair. <laughs> That's
1: all the questions I have for you for this part of the interview. Is there anything I should have asked? Anything else you'd like to add?
2: I don't think so, except to just say once again that we're extremely grateful for the community of people that. Helped us along the way. There's no way that Westery would ever exist without the help of a list of people way too numerous for me to list off right now. Um, that's just the, that's just the truth of it, and I know it's true for a lot of other people too.
0: Well, what I would say is that I'm glad to, to hear that the archive is is trying to put this together because I think that that. History is something that uh, a lot of people that are coming into this industry are are missing and that you know you go to the places where people have been making wine for a long period of time and even if you come in from outside, you cannot. Escape history hitting you in the face like a large fish. <laughs> so, even the even the people that are that are coming to Burgundy that from outside who have, who have decided that they're going to, to make wine, and we know a couple of uh, people who are young and, and came to Burgundy and made very very small quantities of wine in in, in corners. You cannot escape the history there, you cannot escape the idea that, that there's so much information within the land and you have to listen to that information. Um, Oregon is so new that people need to know their history, people need to at least have an opportunity to explore that history. Because making wine in a, in a vacuum is 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 detrimental and so I'm very happy to hear that the archive is trying to, to find as many of uh, the people that that proverbially struggled in the dirt in the trenches to to get us as far as we are because uh, the unfortunately the the old guard is is, is passing away and we want to preserve this history before it's gone, because we're, the, land, the land will be here before uh, and was here before us and, and will be here long
1: after us, but
0: we have only a short period to make our contribution to listening to it.
1: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success.